So um, talking today in this podcast with Eric Gay, who is a alpine skier, has been for many, many years, a very successful alpine skier from Canada and good friend of mine. So I asked uh, Eric to come and spend uh, some time with me today to talk about all things leaving your mark. So what does that mean, leaving your mark? So a, a little introduction to you. Um, basically, I started this podcast, Eric, because I want to talk about how people have affected us in our lives and how you feel you affect others in terms of um, leaving a mark on this earth. And so I figured it, it would be really powerful to get some people who've really done some special things in their lives and look back at their life and say, who left a mark on them and why and how, and then sort of talk a little bit about, you know, where you're going with your own legacy on this planet, etc. So um, to introduce you, as I said at the beginning, um, you're a world-class alpine skier, have been for many years, have won uh, world championships, etc. But let's take it back a little bit. Um, you're from Mont Tremblant. You grew up here, um, skied here, and your dad and mom kind of got you into skiing. So let's go back to when it started. Your your brother of three brothers, you got an older and a younger. Um, what was life like in Mont Tremblant as you grew up, got you into skiing? It was great. Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. I'm excited to be here. And we always have great discussions in the gym while we're working out. So this is the, the, the first time we're actually sitting down at a table and having this conversation. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a skiing household. I grew up with a mother and father who were very involved in skiing. My mother is a, was a ski instructor and still is a ski instructor. Uh, my father started out as a ski instructor, went into coaching, and, uh, you know, he's now retired. He's 78 years old, but he spent, uh, you know, his whole life on the ski hills, and he's still extremely involved. I have two brothers, both of whom made the national ski team. Um, the younger one was extremely talented. He was world junior champion and unfortunately had a pretty severe knee injury that, that kind of knocked him out of the running. Uh, my older brother um, opted to take a scholarship to Utah U, and he raced NCAA. He won NCAA championships, but uh, ended up getting his, his education instead of pursuing the athletic uh, sort of train. Um, but the people that really got me involved were absolutely my parents. Uh, you know, my mother from a young age, she's the one that sort of taught me to get on snow for the first time from sort of the age of 18 months to about five years old. She's the one that had the patience and, and knowledge to deal <laughs> with, uh, you know, little boys that, you know, are bouncing off the walls and have a lot of energy. Um, so she got me started, and, and after that, I had a multitude of, of coaches before I actually ended up working with my father, but he was always around, and he was always there to spend time with us and give us feedback and knowledge and, and help instill that passion in ski racing uh, through his own vision, but, but, but make us fall in love with the sport. And he followed me up until sort of I, I made the national team at maybe the age of uh, 18 years old. Uh, at which point um, he went back to the Quebec ski team and worked with my younger brother. Um, felt like I was in good hands and on a good train of uh, a good, good path. And so he stepped back and sort of uh, helped my brother out a little bit at that point. So the people that left a mark on my life, I would definitely say are my parents. Um, to this day, you know, I, I still live just down the street from them. And I'm now the father of four young girls. And even now, my mother and father help out tremendously, whether it be through babysitting or uh, helping them also to get involved in skiing and get on, on snow. Um, so, you know, they're, they're still leaving a mark on my life. Uh, so let's, let's this take, far later. yeah, let's take that for a second and look at your dad. 
to my understanding is that your dad started skiing pretty late in life, actually. And wh- why, like, I don't know if you've ever talked to your dad about it, but why do you, why do you think he fell in love with skiing so late <laughs> in life? And Well, I think he, he didn't have the option to, the opportunity, I should say, to ski at a young age. He was a hockey player. He grew up in Montreal, uh, downtown. So he, he never really knew about the mountains. He didn't know about ski racing. Um, through hockey, he had a couple of friends that played, uh, you know, on a national hockey league level. And at one point they just decided to come up for the weekend and they invited him to come along and he came up and the first time he tried skiing, I think was around the age of, uh, 28 years old. Uh, he enjoyed it immensely. And oftentimes we see that with hockey players, you know, they're, they're quite good skiers right away. They just, those two sports kind of go hand in hand. So it's easy for them to pick it up. So my father picked it up quickly. He enjoyed it. He came back a few times, really liked it, uh, ended up quitting his job in Montreal and moving up here full time to become a ski bum. Um, so that basically meant, uh, you know, becoming a ski instructor and going through through the, the process of learning about ski racing and, and how to uh, ski properly. And it really infatuated him in that he he loved the aspect of being outside, you know, coming from a hockey background where he was always in a hockey arena. He found all of a sudden this uh, exposure to being outside all the time on a ski hill um, was quite powerful for him. And so he just fell in love with it. And uh, he decided young that, uh, you know, rather rather than put his kids in, in hockey, um, just for you guys out there, I am a massive hockey fan. But <laughs> <laughs> he, he decided not to put us in hockey. Uh, instead, he wanted to put us more in skiing so that he could selfishly be outside more and, and enjoy the sport that he kind of fell in love with. That's awesome. And when you look at your dad's legacy, like talking about leaving a mark, and he's like my understanding, and I'd love to hear more about it, is he, he really built a lot of the, I guess, performance-oriented side of the programming up here in Mont-Tremblant. Do you look back on that with like, and I know some of the conversations we've been having the last few days about what you want to do, and we'll circle back to that later, but you look back at that and kind of go, wow, you know, what my dad did was, does it impress you more now in some sense than it did back then? No, absolutely. I mean, what my father did was, uh, you know, you have to imagine, you know, a a ski instructor salary is not enormous. So he had a, a small budget to work with and he had three boys that he wanted to, you know, his goal was to put them on the World Cup. He wanted them to, to be performing on the World Cup. So how do you do that with such a limited budget? Well, you stay involved. Um, so how he did that was, you know, he got involved in coaching. Um, that way he incurs a lot of the cost rather than pay for a coach to coach his kids. He was there to coach his kids and he didn't have to pay that cost. He was actually getting paid to do that. The second thing that he did, which was very impressive to me, was he was able to form a team. Uh, around me and my brothers uh, and sort of pick and choose the best athletes from across Quebec and regroup them in a team. So some of those athletes uh, made it to the national team and actually had good careers on the World Cup, guys like Junet Cousineau, uh, Jean-Philippe Boage, and Yves Simal, uh, all athletes that went on to the World Cup and had, had you know good success on the World Cup, I would say. Um, but I think that helped me out tremendously. You know, if you have a, a team that you're able to build from and, and feed off of, uh, of course, it'll help you from a developmental standpoint, but it also helps to have buddies around. And those were really my friends growing up, you know, so it was it was fun to travel with them. I have fond memories of kind of going to summer camps in Chile and Whistler and elsewhere in the world uh, with my father as the coach, but also with my, my teammates. And how did your mom play a role in all that? Like, I know you said your mom started you, but as it's sort of the baton got handed to your dad, where did 
where'd mom yeah. fall into that? Old well, thing? to put things in context, you have to imagine that my dad is a little bit, he's hardcore. You know, he, uh, <laughs> He enjoys hardcore hockey. Yeah, hardcore he's kind of, skiing. He's, you know, he's that kind of guy. He was motivated. He was driven. He, he was uh, passionate about it, and sometimes hard on the kids. But to me, um, I think I appreciate it. I appreciate it, especially at my age now. I appreciate what he taught me. You know, things like discipline and and self coaching, and you know, relying on yourself, that sort of thing. Um, I find I found that he he gave me a lot of insight into. into things that I'm now applying with my daughter. In contrast to that, my mother was the opposite. She was the one that would hold down the fort. And maybe, you know, if, if he was hardcore like this, my mom was on the other other end of the spectrum. So we kind of found a middle ground and all. Um, so she was, you know, mothering, nurturing, um, always there to talk to. Um, Has she always been a ski instructor? Like, did she do that when you guys were young as well? Yeah, she's been okay. a ski instructor for, I don't even know how many years, to be honest, but I would say at least... 35 years, possibly more. And, uh, yeah, she, she just as well fell in love with the sport, loved the sport. Actually, my parents met on the ski hill. Um, so yeah, again, it, it's kind of their shared passion. Now, how do you look at that legacy of your mom that she's coached and like, not at the same, in the same way that your dad has, but has been sort of effectively gotten so many people interested in skiing through her whole life. That's yeah, pretty, absolutely. Pretty and, I, and I still hear to this day, you know, people that have had my mom as a, a ski instructor, they come back and they're like, oh my God, she's, you know, you probably see it in other, you know, I, I when I work with other specialists like yourself, I'm like, I go back and I'm like, man, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know, I, I've lived through it. That's the impression I get from people that have worked with my mom. You know, she knows how to coach everybody from, uh, the very beginner, you know, first time on snow, who's 30 years old and has never felt a pair of skis, uh, to a more advanced skier, you know, who's just lear- learning, looking to sort of refine his technique and become a better skier. Uh, so she's got a, a broad spectrum of, of knowledge um, in terms of teaching. So, yeah, you know, she made her living out of it. Yeah, that's the thing that's impressed me about your mom when I bump into her on the hill or when, you know, we've talked and stuff. She seems like somebody who it doesn't matter what your background is, who you are, what money you come at it with or whatever. She treats you like, you know, I'm going to take care of you to get, get you yeah. passionate about, she imparts her passion about skiing yeah. uh, to whoever she coaches, which is really Absolutely. cool. And I think you need to have a fairly high level of patience when you're working with people that are beginners, you know, you don't want to make them feel anxious or make them feel like they're incompetent in what they're doing. As well as with young kids. I mean, I watch her with my kids and she has this way of dealing with them that I certainly wouldn't be able to do. You know, I I just feel like, you know, I want them to go faster. I want them to have fun. I want them to keep up uh, where she just finds a way to kind of go step by step and be patient with them. She has, you know, little tips along the way, which isn't overwhelming, but kind of keeps them interested. Little tricks like she always has a bag of Smarties in her pockets, you know, so the kids stay motivated and if they do well and they get a Smartie here and there. I was going to ask you if you adopted that trick. (laughs) I try, I try to, but you know, to be honest, I try to stick with the older uh, kids and I I leave the younger ones to her. I think she actually does a way better job than I I would ever be able to uh, with the younger ones. So I try to stay towards the, the old ones. Cool. So if we go back to your brothers growing up, um, what did what influence did they play in your success as a person, as an athlete, and as a person? Mm-hmm. And what challenges did they did they sort of afford you in in that process of growing up? 
Well, the first thing I remember is my, my older brother. Um, I think from a very young age, I was motivated to try to beat him. Uh, I don't know if that, I guess that's just sibling rivalry, but for me, it was always, you know, I need to go and get him. I need to make my way up and, and beat him. So, you know, when we do summer camps together, he was always training sort of on one side and he'd be watching what he's doing and I'd be trying extra hard. I'd be spending a little bit more time on the hill so that I could eventually catch him. And I think it's inevitable that at some point uh, I'm going to catch him and even pass him or, or, you know, be around the same level as him. Um, for my brother, I think that was a challenge. You know, you have to imagine yourself as an older sibling who all of a sudden your younger brother is, is starting to catch you and even pass you here and there and everywhere. Uh, I, I would imagine, and, and I think that it wasn't easy for him, and I think that's part of the reason he decided to go uh, go the scholastic route and get a scholarship to, to the States. Um, but I looked at it the opposite way when I, I saw my younger brother, who was also, you know, hungry to come and get me, and I said, you know, it's inev- inevitable at some point that he's going to close that gap and he's going to be on the same level as me. And then we're going to be talking about, you know, hundreds of a second rather than, than seconds gap. So I, I just kept that in my mind. How do I stay ahead of him, even by a small margin all the time? And so there was little things like, you know, when I had, when I was on snow, I was always working. Uh, there was no wasting time. There was no wasting energy with things that were useless. And I, I'd always try to do a little more work than the other guys that were around me. And I think that paid dividends. I mean, unfortunately, Steph didn't quite uh, get the chance to prove himself long-term on the World Cup. You know, he kind of hurt himself his first year on the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's just the, the way things go sometimes. When you look back at, um, you know, that period of time when you were going from, okay, I'm a, I'm a great skier to I might make the national team, I might be a professional at this. And you look at the other guys around you who were part of that same group of guys who were training for with that aspiration Mm -hmm. are there two three one elements of those guys and you difference that you see looking back that was the difference maker in you becoming the pro you are and them not yeah i think there's a few um one that stands out in my mind is i i developed physically quite late um so i hit puberty late and I, i didn't become a man until quite late a few of those guys, you know, they had full beard at 12 years old. And so I was competing with men when I was a boy. Um, and I remember at that time I was frustrated by it because, of course, I was, you know, sort of two seconds behind them all the time. And I thought, I'm going to work even harder to try to go get these guys. But I was always sort of lagging. Um, the moment I sort of turned 17, I would say 17, 18, uh, you know, obviously I took on some size. I took on some mass. I became a lot stronger. And then that gap sort of faded away to nothing, and I even passed those guys. So I think that I, I learned uh, self-motivation at that, that, that stage, and I think it was sheer luck. It was just the fact that I developed later, and I wanted it. You know, It was in me that I, I wanted it. I wanted to beat them, and I was frustrated that I couldn't figure out why I couldn't beat them uh, until later. Of course, I realized that it was a, a size thing, you know, a strength thing. Um, so it was a bit of an underdog thing. In a exactly. Sense. Yeah. It was okay. a total underdog thing. And those guys drove me to want it more. And, uh, you know, again, once I took on that, that size, I passed them, but I kept that motivation. So it was like sort of on to the next thing. Once I was beating those guys at that stage, you know, we were already ranked sort of uh, top five in the world for our age. And I was already looking at, at, you know, going on the world cup. And so that's where I set my next sights was, you know, making it to the world cup and starting to beat those world cup guys. And um, with the same approach, that's exactly how I did it. I just looked at them. What do I do? Well, I ski more. I ski smarter. 
I, I approach everything um, with a specific mindset of making it to the World Cup. So like, I train well in the summer. I trained hard in the summer. Uh, I trained on snow well and harder, a little bit longer periods of time than some of the other guys did. And, you know, slowly I could see that um, the time gaps were getting smaller and smaller as I approached World Cup. And who, who were the big wheels on the circuit at the time that you came on? At that time, of course, I think the most well-known is probably Herman Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, Herman Meyer, Shetil Andre Amat, uh, Michael Walkoffer, those were sort of the three So when you watch dogs. those guys ski and those guys prepare themselves, do you remember, do you, can you reflect back to that time and say to yourself, I, what did you learn from them? What kind of mark did they leave on you when you watched them do what they had to do? Yeah, I mean, I'd watch them in the summer. A lot of the times we would be on glaciers either in Europe or in South America at the same time, and I'd watch what they were doing. And um, I remember, you know, you have to imagine that a World Cup program is obviously a lot different than a junior program, somebody who's trying to make it. World Cup guys tend to do less volume on snow because they're a little bit older and, and they know what they're doing. You know, they don't need quite as much time uh, on the ski hill. As a young guy, I was trying to catch up to them. So I was spending a lot of time on the hill, uh, more than them, because I was trying to learn how to ski properly. At the same time, I remember my coaches would be filming them and then filming us. And I I remember sort of around that age, maybe 19 years old, you know, I'd watch them and I'd watch me and I was thinking, man, there's not much difference between the skiing now. Um, You know, the, the time is maybe a second, a second and a half off, but that's pretty good for a young youngster that's just trying to make it. So it was motivating to me, but I, I do remember watching the video, sort of watching the side by side and saying, man, I, I think that I'm starting to look like a world cup skier. I think I'm looking like I'm that caliber of skier. And that was motivating to me. Um, so the next stage was to get on into the world cup and start actually proving that point. So I know I asked this question a while ago, uh, in another mini interview we did but when you look back now and things that you've learned over the last you know seven eight years how would would you effectively change much about the way when you came onto the circuit what you would have done if you went back and did it again well i mean i I certainly think throughout my career i've learned a lot a great deal um you know at that time you have to imagine there wasn't there wasn't a lot of knowledge basis behind strength and conditioning behind sports psychology. Um, the mindset at that time was more, you know, it's, it's skiing, it's a technical sport. So we have to ski and and work on our technique and that's it. You know, if you get your technique proper, you're going to be faster. That's the bottom line. But I, I came onto the world cup sort of at a, at a time where there was a bit of a shift where there was a lot more emphasis on strength and conditioning, not necessarily in, in proper way. Um, so, you know, my first coaches, it was all about, um, Olympic lifting. So a lot of, you know, clean and jerk, a lot of snatches, a lot of, uh, deadlifts, stuff like that. And in hindsight, I think that probably did hinder me uh, in the long run in that, you know, instead of spending, of course you have to imagine these are young athletes that are put in again, a competitive field. Um, so when I saw my buddy who was doing, uh, 135 kilograms in, in a snatch, I wanted to beat that. So I was motivated to do that. And sometimes your technique goes south as opposed to just working on what the goal is. The goal is to win World Cups. So to me, if I could go back in time, I would have a very different approach on the strength and conditioning stage from a young age. 
And, uh, you know, I would say sports psychology came on even later in my life. You know, sports psychologists were kind of around, but it was more of a global thing where they would come and talk to, you know, the team. So we would be 30 athletes sitting down with a, you know, sports psych that would, would talk to us about mental preparedness. I think most of it went over our heads. Um, until a little bit later in my life when I started working really one-on-one with, with sports psychs that I had a lot of respect for. And that's where I felt like there was a lot of benefit. Um, and certainly, you know, if I could go back in time, I would apply those two things, the strength and conditioning and the mental preparedness at a much younger age. And I think that would have served me throughout my whole career. So ultimately, what do you think? I know we were talking about that today just in the gym, but what do you think separates the top 20 guys? I think it's happening between the years more and more. Yeah. Um, you know, I think just over time, if you look at it, you know, people basically prepare themselves the, the same way technically and physically. They're all strong guys. They've all spent a lot of time on snow. Mm-hmm. Now I'm seeing more and more of a gap with, with what's going on in the, in the brain at the start, you know, how, how people are motivated, um, how they deal with certain circumstances, whether it's success or failure. Um, you know, for me, for a long time, I looked as fa- at failure as a failure instead of a, a learning tool. Mm. So I would have a bad day and I'd be beating myself up like, man, you know, I can't believe this happened. And I'd be hard on myself and I'd be like, I have to do better. I have to try harder. As opposed to looking at it as a learning process and just saying, you know, what did I learn from this? You know, I, I was out on the hill. I was frustrated. Things didn't go my way. Why didn't they go my way? Uh, why am I frustrated? Why am I not able to accomplish my goals? And then from there, once you start asking those questions, I think you, you realize that it's just, um, it's just a simple structure of, of getting your mindset right. And you're going to have frustrating days. I mean, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're able to, to learn from it and bounce back from it sooner rather than later, and especially learn from, from the circumstances that you're involved in, I think it makes you more resilient and it, it makes you a stronger athlete uh, long-term where, where, where there's not much deviation from a continual progression what what are what's a couple of examples of of those of failures in the last you know eight ten years that you've gone through that you think you really when you really uh, resolved or went back you, you learned from significantly well um off the top of my head nothing's really jumping out there i mean i think that a lot of times it has to do with uh, you know injuries sometimes um so little things like like back issues um it's easy. It was easy for me to really get down on myself, and 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 it was even more frustrating for me. In that, normally when I'd have a frustrating moment or I was a little bit unsatisfied with the way things were going, I would buckle down and I would try harder. I would, I would ski more. I would you know just get in my zone. But once you're dealing with an injury, that's not the case. You can't just buckle down and work harder. You know you have to rethink that whole the whole envelope. How am I going to be? How am I going to come back? And how am I going to be stronger? And how am I going to avoid this in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's helped me in that, you know, when injuries happen to me now, I don't get as down on myself. I know that it's just part of the progress. I know that once my body heals, uh, I'm able to be competitive at, at an elite level that I can win on World Cups. And so, you know, you learn a lot of patience. And I think that was the bottom line. You know, I, I learned how to trust myself and be patient with things. When you When you came on the team... Um, were there any guys in the team that acted as uh, mentors to you in a sense, or was no. it kind of feet, feet or fast kind of? Yeah, it was a, it was a tough uh, vibe on the team. I would say when I first started making a mark on the team, you know, 
the older guy. I, I would say around um, Salt Lake City, so 2002. I remember I I won a Europa Cup. I was invited up to the national team to race a World Cup, and I beat all the Canadians in the first race. And um, you know, I didn't get I didn't get a lot of friendly reception at that point. These older guys were kind of looking at me like, "Oh, who's this kid?" And you know, what's he doing here? And you know, I felt like there's there's more animosity. And I remember also in the summer training, I'd already started beating those guys until the head coach decided, you know what, we don't want you guys training with us. So they really split the junior team and the World Cup team because we were beating them, and I think they were getting frustrated. To me, that's just selfish approach. You know, like I, I feel like it didn't, it doesn't help anyone. First of all, the World Cup athletes don't progress because they don't have this fire from the young guys that pushing them to be better. And we didn't have a true mentor to kind of bring up the younger guys. So I, I never had a mentor uh, from an athletic stand, like from a real athlete that helped me um, develop. I didn't, I didn't have that on the national team. And, you know, I certainly remember that when I, when I look at the younger athletes that are up and coming, you know, if I can help them in any way, shape or form, I'm certainly willing to do so. Cause I don't want to have a gap in Canada where, uh, you know, the next 20 years, there's no, no leaders or no winners. So you, you feel a responsibility to be, a I do. Yeah, I do. I do. I feel like I have a wealth of knowledge um, that I've accumulated over the past 35 years. And I feel like I want to give that knowledge back. And um, so how do you take on that responsibility? Do you make it happen or do you wait for it to happen? Well, I'm you trying not to not be that there's a right or wrong answer. I'm, I'm trying to make it happen. I mean, on the one side, while I'm on the world cup, if we have younger guys that are coming up and progressing, you know, I try to help them, but I don't try to, be overbearing. I don't try to be that father figure that's trying to help them all the time. If they want the help, I'm certainly there. If they start talking to me about lines or sports psychology or, you know, training in the summer or technique, whatever it may be, I'm there as a a sort of a sounding board and give them my opinions, but I don't want to be overbearing. And, you know, this is how you have to do it. And there's only one way because there isn't just one way. It's always sort of a moving thing. Um, On the other side, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a father of four young girls and my, my oldest is nine years old and she started getting into competitive ski racing this year. So I'm, I'm living it right now with her. Um, you know, I watched her progression this year, which was, I found quite outstanding and I didn't realize how competitive it was at the age of nine years old. And, um, I, I don't remember it being that competitive when I was a kid. I feel like it got competitive sort of around 15, but I don't remember at nine years old having, uh, you know, real competitions and, you know, it's, it's a serious feel when you get there. The kids are still having fun, but it's like, it's like a real race setup. Um, so I'm, I'm living that with my daughter as well, where I'm trying to give her knowledge, but at a steady pace, you have to remember that she's just a kid. And, and, and the number one thing for her at her age is that she enjoys it and falls in love with the sport and has fun doing it. I think if she enjoys it, then she feels like being out there and then she's driven to do better and naturally, I think she's a kind of a competitive girl. So I don't need to kind of poke her to do better. You know, she wants to do it by herself. If, if any of your daughters came up to you and said, Daddy, I don't want to ski. I don't like it. What, what, how, would you, how would you feel about that? I'd be fine. And to be honest, uh, <laughs> I didn't want them to ski uh, at a competitive level either. My, my plan initially was to put my girls into tennis. And this is just selfishly. Um, I felt like if I put them in a new sport, um, it would be a discovery for them, but a discovery for me as well. And I'd be going, I'd be living something new rather than 
skiing where, you know, I've traveled to every glacier in the world. I've traveled right. to every summer ski resort. I've done most of the ski resorts in the world. Um, so, you know, if they get in skiing, I'm going back through that again. So it was a bit of a selfish thing. I wanted to learn something new. So my eldest Logan, I put her in tennis and, you know, I was pretty motivated I, from a young age or the age four or five, I put her in tennis. She started hitting balls, but she just wasn't interested in it. She, she, she didn't find pleasure playing tennis. And so I kind of stepped back and I didn't want to push her in skiing because I didn't want to be that father. That's like, Oh, you know, slave driver, you have to be a skier. You have to try harder. So I just kind of stepped back and, you know, I taught them to ski. They, they had fun on snow. She had fun on snow. She had friends that were competitive. Um, but I wasn't, you know, urging her in that direction. And it was really at the start of this season that she uh, came to me and she said, dad, I want to be in club elite, which is sort of the, the competitive um, zone, I would say for, for the area. So I put her in club elite and uh, she started off the year with, uh, you know, results that were marginal. Um, and she was like, she wanted to do better. So I spent time with her. I skied with her, you know, extra days whenever I could. I took her out and I just... She wanted to do better because she said to you, Dad, I want to do better? Or you... Yeah, no, she... Interpretation no, she was just uh, frustrated. So her first result, I think she finished something like 17th. And she was like, you know, I, I really wanted to be on the podium. I wanted to be closer to the good girls. And I was like, listen, Logan, I mean, these kids have been competing already for three years now. This is your first competition. You have to take things in stride. They've skied a lot more than you. They've done a lot more gates than you. So it's normal that they're faster. If you put in the time and effort, you're going to catch them in no time. And so from that, she was like, you know, can I, can I go skiing all the time? And of course, you have to imagine that <laughs> there's extra motivation in that she had to kind of miss a little bit of school to go skiing to do those extra days. So, of course, she'd prefer to go skiing than go to school. So there, there is that as well. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say I probably did an extra 10 days of skiing with her between the first race and the second race. And the second race, she finished second. So you can see that progression was, was quite big and quite motivating for her. Um, so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to not be that crazy parent that's, you know, pushing her too hard. But I'm trying to give her all the opportunities to, to push herself and to, to be the best she can be. Um, even from the age of nine years old. Well, the story you told me in the gym today for the listeners, I'd love you to sort of do again for, for them um, around your link to where you feel sports psychology in essence needs to be a part of the coaching reality and the parental reality. So you talked about something you did with Logan on the Hill with you were out skiing and, you know, she wasn't yeah. doing so well. Just tell us, sir, because I thought that was really Yeah, well, well, I mean, at the start of our conversation was about how I think, I think that a good um, on-snow coach is, is also a dryland coach and a sports psychologist, or at least manages those aspects well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm new to the coaching game. I, I've been a ski racer for my whole life, but it's new to me to kind of teach my daughter things. So I'm learning on the fly. And um, one thing I did with her, I went skiing one day and it was, uh, it was really icy and challenging conditions. And we did a few runs and I could see she was frustrated with it and she wasn't having fun. So I finished the, the training right away. I pulled her out and I said, you know, let's just go free skiing and have some fun. So after a few runs, she kind of relaxed and we were, we were talking about things. And the night before, um, or, or a few days before, uh, we were kind of outside and there was a, you know, a little bit of snow drift that was coming off the rooftop and she was having fun jumping off the snowbank and trying to hit the snow down. And she got to a point where it was so high that she couldn't reach it anymore. 
And she'd been bugging me to get these shin pads. Shin pads are things that you put on the front of your shin so you can hit gates and it doesn't hurt. Um, so I told her, you know, Logan, if you, if you touch the snow again, I'll get you those shin pads. So she, she really focused, you know, she got down, she kind of thought of what she was going to do and she jumped as hard as she can and she hit the snow and you know, I'm happy to give her those shin pads. And so then the, the day that we were skiing and she was frustrating, I went up with her in the chairlift and I was, I was, I referred back to that moment. And I said, listen, you remember when you were, uh, when we were, we were jumping and you had to hit the snow pile and how hard you focused and you, and you tried really hard. And, and she remembered it, of course. And I said, that's what's important is that you have to learn to kind of control the things that you can and learn from every moment. Um, so I was kind of, I was kind of referring to her frustrations on the hill. And after sort of that moment where I told her, you know, you, you have to concentrate hard, jump up, touch the snow. We're going to go back and we're going to do one more run where I'd like you to try to focus and concentrate. And, you know, I gave her a few technical tips that we were going to work on. And these were really tough conditions, like super icy. And, and, you know, even for me, it wouldn't have been fun to ski on that day. So I I filmed her and I watched her run and she by far had the best run of her day. And after that, I kind of stepped back and I said, you know, okay, this is enough. (laughs) We did one run. You accomplished it because you were focused. And to me, that was, uh, that was me using sports psychology on a nine-year-old. You know, I was kind of trying to broaden her horizon and, and open her eyes to, um, you know, the fact that at first her, her approach to it was frustration. And, and, you know, she was, she wasn't having fun and she wasn't doing well. So she was like just going through the motions, but things weren't going well. Whereas when she stepped back and she kind of relaxed and she thought about it and she's, you know, okay, I'm, I'm reapproaching it. I'm coming in with a clean slate and a fresh mindset. Then she accomplished it. So right away, I don't know if she, learn from it, but she certainly saw the progress in that day. That's pretty cool. Eh? When you start thinking about what it is, the impact you have as, as a dad, but also as a, as a coach and stuff, yeah. and how that changes people. <laughs> um, I want to actually go backwards just a bit and go, you know, there's Eric, not a dad. And then Eric becomes a dad. And I've actually known you, I think since your first one was born, but you know, prior to having kids, one, did you want to have kids? And two, off of having them was what you perceived it would be what it is. Um, yeah, loaded question. Um, of course, I wanted to have kids. Um, yeah, I always wanted to be a father. And I'll, I always wanted to be a young father because I wanted to enjoy doing activities with my kids, you know, throughout their kind of adolescent years. So, you know, my dad he's a little bit older, so I wasn't as active with him as I would have liked to be. Um, so that was always in my head. So I wanted to have kids young. And I would say one thing that drastically changed in my world once I did have kids was the fact that before kids, it was all about me. It was my schedule. Uh, you know, if I wanted to get up at nine o'clock and go to the gym at 10 o'clock and, uh, you know, work out for four hours and come back and have lunch at three, I could do anything I wanted. My day was my day. You have kids all of a sudden you're on a you're on a timeline you're on a schedule you have to help with everything you don't sleep as much uh so of course everything becomes about them and that's a learning process for somebody who's uh you know an athlete and this is going to sound arrogant in, in terms of it's all me 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 but it really is all me 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 when you're when you're an athlete and you don't have a family so when i had my first kids that my first child that was certainly an eye-opener 
and I learned to work with it. And it probably took me a little bit of uh, adaptation, <laughs> but I, I learned to work with it and even enjoy it. And, um, you know, that's why I continued with uh, two, three, and four. And even now I'm finding it extremely enjoyable to be a father and to manage that sort of manage the chaos, so to speak. You know, there's a busy, busy time frame. I have to make the most of, of the few hours that I have to either be in the gym with you or to get therapy or to do all the other things that I have to do uh, regarding family time. So uh, I've certainly become a better time manager than, uh, than I was in the past. <laughs> One of the best quotes that I've ever heard actually came from your lovely wife, Karen. Because um, she always, you know, I know that we all have our social reality of how we sort of deport ourselves. Yeah. But she always looks like she's under control, so to speak, yeah. as a mom of four now. And I looked at her one time. I said, how do you, how do you just, you always seem to look like everything's okay. And she, she looks at me and goes, I have no expectations. And that was such a, a moment for me because as a father of one, I thought my biggest learning thing was that you can't control this little being, yeah. you know, you go from, like you said, whether, whether it's the perception that you're, you know, you can do whatever you want to, at the end of the day, you can control your environment. And all of a sudden this little person is controlling your environment. I found, That's <laughs> I found right. that a huge change. No, I think, um, her point is very valid in that a lot of times I, I meet people that have, you know, they, they have this idea, okay, I'm going to have a baby. It's going to be great. I'm going to be able to go walking down the street with it. And my life isn't going to change. You know, if I have yoga on these nights and I have uh, CrossFit these days and I, I have my work from this time to this time, my life isn't going to change except I'll have a little baby that'll be all cute and I'll be able to cuddle it. The reality is it changes everything. Yeah. Your, your life is very different and all of a sudden it isn't about you anymore. So I think that's what she means when, you know, my expectation, I, I had no expectations. So she, she just approached it as a, as a reset and, um, you know, I'm learning from it and how am I going to manage this? How am I going to manage this new kid? How am I going to manage my life around it? And, uh, yeah, certainly I wouldn't be where I am today without my wife because she does hold down the fort and you can imagine four kids is uh, a lot of work. And if she wasn't there to sort of <laughs> guide me through that, um, I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to be competitive for the, the last few years on the World Cup. Let's go into that a little bit. I mean, um, how did you continue to be a high performer um, with that distraction in essence? You know, like it, it does change things. Yep. And so you were performing at the highest levels before, and then all of a sudden now, bang, you have a kid and you have another kid and you have another kid and <laughs> you have another kid. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you maintain that? I mean, you're still – uh, X this year being a tough one with the injury, but I mean, you won world championships last year. How, how do you yeah. do that? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a process. I would say, I think that it, it, there's no book for it. I can't just sit here and, and, and state the facts and the things that I did. I think that I learned throughout, I learned to manage my time. Well, uh, I have a great wife who, who lightens my load so that I can do the necessary things to be, you know, competitive on a world stage. And, and those things are, you know, I, I need to go to the gym daily. I need to get my therapy daily. I, I need some time for rest and recovery here and there. And she's able to give me those things. Uh, the rest of the time, of course, th there's no, th there's no time for me time. You know, there's no time for me to just say, oh, I'm going out to hang out with my friends today and we're going to go and play basketball. That doesn't happen anymore. It's now, okay, well, I'm going to take the kids. 
uh, I'm going to go for a run. Uh, I'm going to put them in the chariot and I'll go for a run on the, on the path or something like that. So you always have to involve your kids and try to keep it balanced so that she also has a little bit of free time. I mean, I can't just pile four kids on her and say, these are your problems. I'm going to do my, uh, you know, I'm going to continue to pursue my career and you take care of the kids. I think that doesn't work. So it was just a, it was finding a balance between, um, between doing the things necessary to continue to be competitive and, and family time. I think that's like, that's one of the most, I'm really glad we got into this part of the conversation as well, because Somebody listening to this, I think the, the, the gem, I think you got to take away from it is, and we were even talking about this the other day is how much in essence we waste time in life and could we revisit the way we construct our day, construct our lives and still be high performers or are we not performing because we're not constructing our day that way? And essentially You've taken a person who had no kids, added one, added another one, added another one, added another one, added a dog, da, 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 all these things kept performing. How do you do that? Well, at the end of the day, it's a way, it's about how you manage your time. Mm -hmm. And you recognize then in some sense that you, you frittered away a lot of time probably before. Absolutely. And I think sometimes people don't think that, like, don't realize how much time yeah. you waste and what you can really achieve with a lot of different distractions. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I, I feel, and I feel it now, you know, when I go on a ski camp, all of a sudden I don't have any kids around. And, you know, I, I, I do my on-snow training. I do my physio. I get my rest in in the afternoon. I do everything that I need to do. And then I'm like, man, I got six hours to kill now. What did I used to do? I guess I sat in front of Netflix and I did other things. Now, now I feel like I need to do something, you know, so I'm, I'm learning things or I'm reading or I'm, I'm doing something progressive. I think people don't realize how much time they actually have until they're forced to manage their time properly. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you impart that wisdom at all to your, the young punks on the team? Uh, no, I guess I haven't really thought about it that way. Um, no, I have I haven't instilled that wisdom with them yet. <laughs> The next journey, so yeah, the next journey, and so now you got you got four little ones, and um, they're all different. So you know when you look forward to, you know your your growth as a parent and stuff, and what they do. What's exciting about that? The fact that you have four, and, and what they're they're all different. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, again. You know, the things that I've learned through coaching this year, because, of course, I spent a lot of time with Logan, but also a lot of time with her teammates, is that every kid is different and every kid needs something different. You know, one kid might be very strong physically. One kid might have that urge to go fast but isn't strong technically or physically. So you have to find what, what, what helps them improve. And it's the same with my kids. You know, they're vastly different personality-wise. There's different things that drive them. And so it's learning – it's being open-minded and, and learning about your kids, what their passions are, what drives them. My, my eldest I find is the easiest because she is my spitting image. She's exactly like me. Um, she, she looks like me, but she's also mentally like me. You know, the same mm -hmm. things that drive me drive her. Um, the other ones, I mean, they're a little bit younger, so it's not as easy to tell, but I can, I can start getting uh, sort of some personality traits. Like my third one is, you know, she's competitive that's all she wants to do is sort of beat her sisters. And I think, again, that's, that's a bit of sibling rivalry going on there. My second one is quite relaxed, but she's very talented physically. 
Um, so I would say like, she, she's, she kind of goes unnoticed, you know, where she's, she's always there. She kind of looks like she's not trying too hard and then she'll do something and it really impresses you. And you're like, well, where did that come from? And I, I think she's just, she's always there, always progressing and always sort of in the shadows, but always progressing where the third one takes up a lot of space. She's always busy. She's always climbing. She's always bouncing off the walls. So to me, it's just learning the different aspects and, and, and trying to um, help them discover, you know, what, what they're passionate about, what they enjoy and, you know, giving them the opportunities to help uh, feed that. So when you look back at, um, you know, you described yourself as a, functional late bloomer in some sense like do you have a do you have more patience in some ways for your kids growth and development than maybe somebody else who was an early bloomer would you think or yes and no I mean I certainly understand the physical aspect of it I mean if you're looking at a group of nine-year-olds you have some that are you know very strong physically and have already grown quite a bit and actually my daughter is different that way in that she's you know by far the tallest in her class so she seems to be an early bloomer compared to what I was. Uh, but yes, in the same way, you know, there's some kids on, on her team that are tiny, um, but ski really well. And sometimes they're frustrated with the times and stuff like that. And I, I think the times are, they're fun. You know, they give you sort of feedback to know if you're progressing or not, but they're certainly not the end all be all at that age. The, the important thing is that they're being developed technically the right way. And that you're starting to put, certain things in place. So, you know, you ask questions so that they become mentally aware of what's going around, going on around them. You try to get them involved in different sports in the summertime, you know, like Logan this summer is going to be doing rugby, tennis. Uh, I'd like her to do some sort of martial arts as well, swimming. So she's going to be doing a variety of different sports just to keep her active and, and also to keep her busy. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, parents start specializing at a young age and that limits their development over time i'm having this personal struggle a little bit now and i'm curious how you are approaching it too is knowing um when to push the gas pedal and when to back off of the gas pedal mm -hmm. and i don't know that there's really a right answer to that but wh what's your intuition sort of yeah I, tell you? <laughs> I don't know e either I, I like to put i like the the driving force to come from the kids themselves. Um, I, I don't want it to be a chore like, okay, we're going skiing. And then the reactions are, Oh, not again. I don't want to go skiing. I just want to stay at home. Uh, I had a moment like that the other day where, you know, we were supposed to go skiing. Uh, she didn't want to because she'd had already sort of four days on snow. That was fine. We stayed home. We did other things. There's moments that you do need to push them. There's moments that it may be just laziness or, you know, they, they need to be, pushed in a certain way, but I find the best way is to surround them by other kids that are, you know, doing a sport that they also enjoy. So in this instance, it'd be skiing. So if you're with another four or five kids that love skiing, then she feels that passion as well. And she feels like being there and she feels like progressing with those kids. So mm -hmm. it's, it's regrouping them in a strategic way to help them fall in love with the sport and continue to progress. I'm going to change paths a little bit. Um, well, it's a lot of it in some sense. You won world championships last year, not this season, but the season before in Super G and Silver and Downhill. And you did it before, I think it was about eight or 10 yeah, years. Yeah, 2011. 2011. <laughs> what was different about the two? 
Um, well, I mean, the first thing that jumps out, of course, is they were completely different venues. Um, so if you're looking at it from just the skiing aspect, um, you know, one was really steep and really gnarly, icy. Uh, the second one, St. Moritz, was more moderate with massive jumps and more terrain changes. So it was really different from those two standpoints. But the approach into them was also different and similar. In, in 2011 in Garmisch, when I won, um, I, I'd had a little bit of a frustrating time. You know, I was skiing okay, but not as well as I would have liked to. Um, you know, I was kind of finishing around 10th place and, you know, I did the training runs and they were okay, but not exactly where I wanted to. And I just remember being at the top of the downhill and, and thinking to myself, you know, there's going to be a winner today. Somebody's going to be crowned world champion and it might as well be you, you know, forget the training runs, forget everything else that's kind of happened in the last few days, do your best run. And I found it was, it was liberating in a lot of ways, you know, like I, instead of feeling nervous and feeling like that, that pressure that you sometimes feel at the start of a race, I felt like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go in the start gate. I'm going to push out of the start gate as hard as I can. I'm going to win the split to that first gate. And then I'm just going to have a great run and have fun on my way down and, and, and try to create speed everywhere. And that's what I did. And that's what happened. You know, it was textbook, no pressure. I didn't ski like I had pressure. If you watch my video, it looks like, I'm just relaxed top to bottom. And so um, I don't think I knew what I was doing at that point. Like I, I didn't have the mental aptitude to realize, okay, man, that was a, that only happened between your ears. How can I redo that? Mm. You know, how can I bounce back from frustrating moments and forget about it? Right. It wasn't until years later that I, I realized that pattern, you know, that I, that I was able to kind of forget the things that were frustrating me and that weren't going well brush them off and start a clean slate, you know, that day, anything can happen on that day. And actually it was probably easier because, you know, the, the guys that were winning the training runs had more pressure and they had probably had high expectations and they were probably already imagining themselves standing on the podium in the finish as opposed to looking at, okay, what do I have to do to win? Well, I have to ski hard. I have to have fun on the way down. I have to challenge myself on the way down, take some aggressive lines. They, they were already, celebrating in the finish line and that's like the worst thing you can do in skiing <laughs> so any sport for that yeah. <laughs> um these last world championships were vastly different in that vastly different but also similar in that um I, i'd had a massive crash uh only about 10 days earlier but i had been skiing very fast i'd been skiing uh you know podium contention all the time um, before I'd crashed, I was winning the splits. Uh, then I had this big crash. I had pretty big bruising on my, my sort of lower back on my glute and I couldn't sort of ski for two or three days. And then I came back, but, but when I came back, I already came back with a mental game plan and that was, okay, I'm not going on the hill and seeing how things feel. I'm going on the hill and I'm winning the first run, the first training run. I'm going to win it. How do I do that? Well, you know, I wake up in the morning on the right side of the bed. I do my warm up in the morning. I get on hill. I work on my technical aspects. First training run, what I want to accomplish. I want to go out there and I forget what I was working on technically, but I want to work on that and I want to challenge my line on the way down. So I did that. I won the first training run. I won the next sort of six or eight training runs that I did with the American team and the Austrian team that were there. 
And then when I got to St. Moritz, you know, I was already very confident because I knew I was skiing really well. Um, so it, it was different in that all of a sudden I was dealing with a certain amount of pressure because I knew that I was skiing well and my, my expectations, my personal expectations were um, higher. And I'm fortunate in the way that I, I'd had some sort of uh, sports psychology training. And now I think I had a better understanding of how to handle that. Um, so again, where a lot of athletes would get in the start and imagine themselves on the finish, in the finish, on the podium, celebrating. I got it. I got there in the morning and I had a game plan. Okay, I wake up, right side of the bed, diligent with my workouts, get on hill. I have aspects that I want to work on technically and, and, and um, mentally. And then when I push out of the start gate, I have a good plan that I just need to initiate. And if I initiate it, I will win. So that was kind of the approach. And again, it went sort of textbook that day. So when you win a world championship or a really big race, um, is, does it fill you with a sense of fulfillment um, and, and sort of a reaffirm what you've done to prepare yourself or is it yeah. almost an, is there an emptiness to it? No, no, no. There's, there's a sense of fulfillment, but it's short lived. You know, mm -hmm. people want, uh, you know, right away they're, they're kind of looking towards that next thing. And I remember one of the most frustrating moments of world championships was um, speaking to a Canadian journalist right after the race. And they were asking me about the Olympics and I got a little bit upset with this journalist and I was like, listen, I, I just won world championships. It's a big deal. And uh, you're already thinking about, you know, the Olympics, which are in two years. Like, let me enjoy the moment here. Let me, you know, have my moment of fame and, and enjoy it. So there, there is that aspect where, you know, people are proud of you. You're proud of yourself. You're super happy with the moment, but right away they're looking for the next thing and the next success and the next uh, yeah. moment that you're going to shine. And, and that can be, uh, that can, there can be, a big emptiness to that feeling, you know? So to reflect on that, because, uh, you know, part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast too, was this sense of how people find fulfillment and personal success and versus it being sort of the, the objects of our desire, like, you know, I'm going to get that car, that house, that thing, or that metal, like what really about how you live your life gives you the greatest sense of fulfillment at the end of the day? Oh, my family, hundred percent. And, uh, you know, that's what I fall back on all the time, whether I have success or failure, I just know that I'm coming home and my family's going to be here and I'm going to be able to spend time with my kids. And, and that's what motivates me. And in a lot of, uh, ways, that's what's actually lightened the load on the last years. And I think that's a big reason that I've had continual success is that skiing almost became secondary. You know, I, I still have passion for it, of course, and mm -hmm. I still wanted to succeed, but you know, if you'd asked me to choose between family and skiing, I mean, skiing would have hit the window pretty fast and I would have moved on to other things. So that's cool. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's, that, that lightened the load. It, it became uh, less about me and skiing and more about us and family. Right. So as you look forward to, you know, the next part of your next journey of your life, um, you know, if somebody said, what, what are they going to write on Eric Gay's tombstone when it's all over? What, what do you hope people would write there or um, say about you? I've, I've always had a, a motto in my life, and I think it would apply here. And that's, you know, the three things that I think are important in my life, and it's country, community, and family. And so, you know, I've, I've 
to the best of my ability, I've represented Canada um, from an athletic standpoint, but also from a humanitarian standpoint. I try to represent Canada well when I'm traveling. I try to be polite. I try to be courteous. I think that's what Canadians are. Um, now I, I also have my family side. You know, I try to be the best father I can be. I try to spend time with my kids. I try to impart knowledge that I've learned it throughout my life. And I, I hope that they're going to become good human beings as well. And the third part is community. And I found, I find that because I've traveled so much in the, in the last, uh, you know, 15 years, I haven't been a huge part of the community. Of course, I mean, I'm hoping that I motivated kids that are in the ski club or kids that are in, in athletics uh, all over, but I don't feel like I've been part of the community. And so I think this next stage in my life, when I, when I do end up retiring, um, I think community is going to be a big part of that. I think I'm going to want to work with the kids locally. I want to work with uh, the schools. I want to see if I can't impart my knowledge on them. Uh, and if I can't find a way that we continue to, to produce uh, top-level athletes. So you want – he was a great Canadian, a great family man, and a great community leader. There you go. I like that. <laughs> that, that would be a good, uh, a good reading on the text. <laughs> Next time, Scotty, you invite me back. I have all these questions for you. It's going to have to be okay. me that's asking the questions. Well, you asked me. You asked me your one. One of your questions. Uh, what's, what's your one? Question? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, you you've been asking me all these questions about you know living a high performing life and, and what's uh, left a mark on you. But you know, you've kind of lived through a lot of the same things. You've you've obviously come from uh, a world, I would say. In strength and conditioning that was maybe not well known, but became very popular. And then you, you sort of went through the national, uh, the national hockey leagues and you must've seen a massive shift from when you started to today. Uh, so maybe you could just walk us through what that looked like the last, <laughs> the well, last 20 years. I, I think, you know, my industry that I've grown up in has changed dimensionally. And I think it's, um, it's actually an interesting litmus test of life in general that we have these what I call pendulum or most people call pendulum swings. Mm -hmm. Thing goes from here and then it goes way over here and it kind of keeps teetering back and forth and maybe slowly you find something in the happy ground, you know. And I think in watching my career, you know, when I started, it was over here. It was all about, you know, being strong and big and powerful and massive and then this pendulum started swinging and people got really kind of funky functional wacky wild and woolly and now it's sort of coming back into sort of a happy space in the middle and I, that's kind of what i believe in yeah. is you know taking the best of all these worlds and combining them and, you know we always have great conversations about things in the gym because at the end of the day i personally believe what i do professionally um and will hopefully transcend as I'm going into doing this podcast is, is really a certain percentage, a small percentage is really what I do technically. Yeah. And another larger percentage is what I do as a human, like a, in a human relationship terms. Mm -hmm. So it's creating trust, creating belief. Um, you know, even the things that you talked about in terms of sports psych and, you know, what our roles are and what we need to know. I think those things are huge parts of being a really good coach or teacher in any venue, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, yeah, there's a technical acumen you have to have, but if the person, if you don't believe in what I'm saying, it doesn't matter how good it is. 
Um, you know, and a plate of food can look really good, but if, unless you trust that it's going to taste good, you're not going to take the first bite. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you know, it's a combination of a lot of different things. And I think that that's what I've learned in my 30 years professionally is when I was young, I wanted to know the technical, you know, I, there was this voracious appetite for learning more and more. But as I went along professionally, I started to realize that the way I deported myself to the, to the points you just made, the way I carried myself, the way I acted, the way I treated people, the, the interest I had in what they were, what motivated them. That's what drove successful coaching more than actually the technical, you know? And then you add the spice of being a little bit more, maybe open-minded to the possibilities and hopefully you, you get some great results. Yeah. That's what I've learned. Well, you've helped me out throughout my career. I mean, we've been working together for, you know, eight Almost years eight or so, years now, yeah. eight years. And one of the things that you told me, which I, I think is relevant to, uh, you know, I've certainly lived through it. You know, when I, when I first made the team, um, it was like you said, it was this strength. It was like everybody was weightlifting and putting on masks. We wanted to look like football players. And, and you, you told me from a strength and conditioning side, there's two different kinds of strength and conditioners. One that looks at the numbers. One guy that says, okay, you came in and you squatted 200 kilos. You left and you squatted 210. My job is done. You're stronger. Mm -hmm. There's the other one that comes in and says, well, you're, you're a ski racer. You started the year ranked ninth and you finished the year ranked sixth. My job is done because you've improved as a ski racer, as an athlete. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was meaningful because of course, there, there is that aspect of strength. But now, as you mentioned, there, there's the other side, which is, how do you put it, wooly wonky and <laughs> everything <laughs> well, else. Well, yeah, yeah. And now it's somewhere in the middle. And, yeah. and that's what I found with you. It's, it's somewhere in the middle. There's that aspect where you have to be strong, but you also have to be flexible. You have to be functional. So it's somewhere yeah. in between. And, you know, to, to ask you, actually, from I probably wouldn't do that with every guest that I have because I haven't worked with every guest that I have. But is, you know, when you look at um non-technically my impact or the mark i've left on you what would you say that, that is if it wasn't just from a technical um, perspective there's a lot of things i mean you've had so many great analogies throughout the years but but one i mean again another one that sort of impacted me was the analogy of the car length so you were talking about you know you know if you're tailgating somebody and you're doing 100 kilometers an hour and he hits the brakes you're going to run into him you're trying to create distances. So, you know, when I first came to see you, I, I was dealing with issues. I had back problems. I had knee problems. I was all kinds of messed up. And I don't know if you remember, but I couldn't mm -hmm. touch my toes. No, it was all kinds of crooked. <laughs> and, and you said, that's what we're going to try to do is over time, create car distances so that if something happens, you can avoid it or you can grab a hold of it soon enough and then continue to, you know, make those spaces to a point where you're going to be strong enough and, you know, it won't be an issue. You'll be far enough away from the other cars. You remember that? That's yeah, like, yeah. so, so those things kind of, you know, they to you, it might be, they, <laughs> they might be just, you know, off the cuff things that you're kind of, right. kind of shooting across the table. But to me as an athlete, I, I take that to heart, you know, I kind of, it puts a good visualization tool for me, you know, where awesome. I'm like, okay, that's what I need to do. I need to create some car distances then when something happens and I tweak my back, you know, I'm not running into the car in front of me. I know that I have the strength and capacity to bounce back from that fairly fast. And most of the time that's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Um, we could probably talk for two days and we'll probably yeah. do this again <laughs> another time, but this has been uh, extraordinary, really nice time chatting with you. Thanks for taking no an problem, hour Scott. of your day to talk to me. I hope I come back. I hope I get another invitation. Yes, brother.